Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where big ideas meet practical realities in food production, you have found the right show, my friend. I get the pleasure of learning a lot of cool and new and exciting things on this show about agricultural technology and innovation. But when it comes down to it, none of this stuff really matters if we can't get appropriate amounts of either rainfall or irrigation on crops. I mean, it really kind of comes down to that basic level. And we can't take these things for granted, especially in the context of a changing climate. I'm sure most of you already know, but California and other Western U.S. states are facing drought yet again. Both groundwater and surface water levels are dangerously low in many areas, and it's a major concern for the top state in agricultural sales in the U.S., California. So I wanted to do an episode, this episode, on California water for that reason, as well as the fact that really they're not alone. Many areas of the world that rely on irrigated agriculture are struggling with the very same issues. Some are further along than California. Uh, some are not quite as far along and are choosing to sort of kick the can down the road. But this is a big, big deal for the future of agriculture. The potential solutions are definitely not easy and are often extremely complex. In fact, just the thought of doing a podcast episode, quote unquote, covering California water is laughable. Many books have been written on this subject. Lawyers spend their entire careers learning the nuances of this topic. And there really is just no way to sort of cover California water on one single podcast episode. But here's what I do have for you here today. Today's episode is going to be broken down into three different parts. So very different from our normal podcast. Uh, the first part is a brief primer on a few of the issues contributing to California's struggles with water. Secondly, a potential hydrologic solution going forward, which is groundwater recharge. Can we use the farm ground to actually replenish the groundwater that we've been depleting all of these years? It's got kind of some cool parallels to the carbon sequestration conversation. Can we incentivize farmers to put this stuff in the ground? Although instead of carbon, in this case, it's actually water. And finally, in the third section, we're going to talk about water markets by highlighting the new NASDAQ Vellus California Water Index. Now, to help me in each of these three storylines, I've actually contacted three different people to be guests on today's show. So you're going to hear from Dr. Safiq Khan, Dr. Helen Dalka, and Lance Coogan. Again, I can't stress enough that this is just the very tip of the melting iceberg of California water, but it is a start. So you can listen to previous episodes if you'd like. We've done on the show like 159, Water Economics with Dr. David Zetlin, 161 with Adam Borchard, or 198 with Chris Peacock if you'd like to get more background and information on this topic. But start here. Start with today's episode. You're already here. Just sit tight, but go back and listen to those afterwards if you'd like more information. But as I said, each of our three parts today are going to feature a different guest, starting with now Dr. Safiq Khan a Cooperative Extension Specialist in Water and Watershed Sciences at the University of California Division of Ag and Natural Resources. He really sets some great context for our entire episode, starting with the fact that droughts in California are nothing new, and they will inevitably continue, but our resiliency to face those droughts are what should cause us concern. 
in a Mediterranean climate like California, we are always in a drought. The question is whether we are talking about a seasonal drought or whether we are talking about an annual drought or whether we are talking about a decadal drought, right? So the droughts that last, you know, 10 years or longer. So drought in the California's climate is not something new. We usually get, you know, two, three, four years long drought, you know, quite frequently um, because we go through this episodes of several wet years and then several dry years. The question really is, you know, like, as you probably know, the temperature is getting warmer and warmer in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. So the same drought is having a much bigger impact now than what it was doing in the past. Consequently, the current droughts are more, what you call like disastrous, so to speak, both in terms of the amount of dryness that they create and the amount of the fire hazard and all the other things that, that come with the drought. It's a more impactful, so to speak, not in a positive way, in a negative way. So 77 was, was another really, really dry episode in the California history. Late 20s and, and 30s, you know, there was another episode of prolonged drought that was, I believe it was like, you know, five years longer. The same way that we had 2012, 2016 drought, there was another drought in 90s. So yeah, the drought in California's climate history is not new. What has changed? I would assume that the demands for water have increased drastically since, you know, 1977. My hunch is that surface water storage, so supply, supply has not gone up near as much as demand. Is that right? So our supply, you know, to put it, you know, uh, to give you some numbers, I think we get about close to 100, 110 million acre feet of precipitation each year on average. And about half of that basically goes back to the atmosphere through transpiration and evaporation and, and so on. So we have about like, you know, I believe like 40 million acre feet of water that we have to work with for everything. That includes, you know, agriculture, urban, industrial use and all sort of other stuff, right? So that's the amount of water that we have. And we always kind of, you know, get that much once you average, you know, over several years. What has changed in the last let's say two or three decades, uh, two things. One is because we are in a Mediterranean climate, snowpack is very critical for our water supply. We can only store so much behind our dams. Much of the storage in terms of water storage is really in the form of snowpack that sits in the mountain. And so in the winter, we get snow, the water sits in the mountain and it starts melting in the spring and summer when you actually need the water. So the timing actually works perfectly. With a warmer climate, what is happening is actually the precipitation phase itself is shifting from snow to rain, right? So we are getting a lot more rain. Whatever, you know, fewer or little storm that we're getting, all the precipitation is falling as rain. So what is happening is, you know, all that water is actually, you know, hitting the creek and the stream and, you know, flowing down the stream. So it's not being held um, in, in any type of storage. So that's one thing that has changed, right? So our, our capacity to store water has has shifted drastically. Not just the snowpack, but also our ability to store water behind the dam has also changed because now we have to keep much more space in anticipation of a future flood. So because you're getting a lot more, you know, wetter winters, a lot more rain, you cannot take the risk of filling the reservoirs early uh, because that will create, you know, a flood uh, risk. So you cannot fill the dam, but at the same time, if you're letting the water go and in anticipation that that you will get a few more storms later in the season and if you don't get it then it's really you know a bad situation that you're putting yourself but those are the things that water managers actually kind of you know battle with should i hold this water or should i let it go 
If you hold it, what if you get a big storm that can cause flooding? If you let it go, then the challenge is what if we don't get any other storm? So the, the shift in the precipitation phase is really, really critical for, for our water supply. And, and I don't think many people are actually paying attention to that. So the snowpack is key. The second thing that has changed is because of the warmer temperature, the atmosphere itself is, you know, it's warmer, right? So the hot air can hold a lot more, lot more water, right? So the natural vegetation and evaporation from the water surfaces, be it lake or reservoirs, whatever, all of those things have, you know, are increasing. So we are losing a lot more water. So if anything, our water supply actually is getting lower and lower. And in the, in the valley side of things, you know, in the, in the urban side of things, we are basically, uh, our demand for water has gone up because it's hot, right? Uh, we need more water for growing food. We need more water inside our house. We probably need more water for our swimming pools. We need more water for our lawns. So everything, that our um, demand has gone up supply if anything the supply has gone down and our ability to store water is way lower than what it was so all of these factors actually you know amplifying the drought i mean that really clarifies the situation a lot and also it's terrifying you know what are realistic solutions uh, because that doesn't play out very well you know what you just described yeah, so in terms of some of the solution i think the state is moving in the right direction i think some of the changes that occurred, you know, learning from the previous drought. Um, I think one of the, the things that we actually came out of the drought was this, this legislation that was, was passed, which is the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, right, which puts a little bit more emphasis on managing the groundwater, which in, in, in the California history, this is the first time that you know, a legislation that was passed to regulate groundwater. Otherwise, you know, before that, the groundwater was unregulated. So now, I think, you know, the question is, you know, like, how can we make up for the, for the loss of snowpack in the mountains, uh, right? What are the ways that we can store water? So there are two options that you will actually hear uh, from water managers or people who work in the water sector. You know, you can either build a new dam and, and hold, you know, water behind a dam, or you try to figure out a way to put more water in the ground, figure out a way to, you know, recharge our aquifers. Because if we go back, like, you know, 100 years or, you know, 150 years, the rivers were flowing naturally, and there was a working, you know, hydrologic system that kept replenishing and reflushing the system, the, the aquifer system, right, naturally. But since we converted the land into urban and ag, now the rivers are not flowing. The floodplain is no longer there, but, so the aquifer is not really filling. We, all we are doing is taking the water out of the aquifer. So the question is, how can we connect the system back again? So there is a water going in, and then when at the time of need, you can take water out. So increasing the aquifer recharge during the time when you have water available. So that's one approach. Building new dams sounds very exciting, but unfortunately we do not have a single river that is coming out of the Sierras where we already don't have a dam, right? I didn't catch that. We, we, uh, we don't have the what? Oh, a single river. We don't have a single river without a dam. So where are you going to put a new dam? So that, that's the thing, right? So trying to put some check and balance on our water consumption in any way possible. So we are being mindful of how much water we are using and try to not take the water resources for granted. That's one thing that we can do. And then, you know, as much as possible, try to restore the hydrology of the system as much as possible. So the system is connected. You know, the groundwater is connected to the surface water. Surface water is connected to the groundwater because that's what the healthy 
watershed and, and healthy hydrologic system looks like. Okay, I hope you caught his comments there about how a warmer climate reduces California's number one water storage, which is snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountain range, makes it more difficult to manage as surface water and removes more water from the system due to evaporation. Now, all the while, it also increases the demand we need for water if it's warmer outside. So the severity of all of this really can't be stressed enough, in my opinion. Talking to others in California about this water issue, two additional points that are often brought up are, number one, there has not been a major investment in surface water storage infrastructure in the state of California since the 1970s, despite the increasing demand. And number two, the water demand for environmental purposes, like keeping flows for fish, has also risen dramatically. But I think Safiq's comments are a perfect segue into our next section of today's episode on groundwater recharge. I left my conversation with Safiq absolutely convinced that a big part of the path forward for California water was somehow replenishing these groundwater resources during the times when rainfall is most plentiful, which also happens to coincide with the off-season for growing most crops. He mentioned the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which is certainly giving powers to local groundwater sustainability agencies, which actually GSAs is something Helen's going to talk about next. But we need to manage the outtake of those groundwater resources. We also need to somehow get water back in to where it can store long term. And this is where I'll introduce you to Helen Dalka, Associate Professor of Integrated Hydrologic Sciences in the Department of Land, Air and Water Resources at UC Davis. She's been working on groundwater recharge since 2013 in her lab, including projects to look at the potential of flooding orchards while they're dormant in the winter as one method of groundwater recharge. And that's generally where I'll drop you into our second featured conversation of the day with Helen Delka. And the main motivation for this actually came during the last extended drought that we have, you know, we had that 2012 till 2016, roughly. That was a time when we had very little surface water supply. A lot of farmers had to pump more groundwater to make up or, you know, to meet the water demand for their crops. And we saw groundwater levels plummeting. We saw, you know, some wells going dry, particularly in the southern Central Valley, so there was recognition that we do need to do something about replenishing those groundwater reserves so we have them around for the next drought. And it looks like we are in the next drought. We don't know yet, of course, how long it's going to be. But in between those droughts, we really have to do something about replenishing groundwater reserves so we have a savings account that we can make use of when we need more water. Absolutely. And what is required in order to recharge an aquifer? I mean, is it as simple as watering the ground as if it had a crop on it at that time, but just letting it sort of infiltrate the soil or, or you know, what goes into that? Yeah, so groundwater recharge is actually a very natural process. So every time it rains, there will be groundwater recharge unless it's only, you know, a couple droplets. But when we have Winter rains, like one of those big storms coming through, which we sometimes call atmospheric rivers, typically there's so much rainfall falling at that time that there is always sort of a surplus. So not all of it is evaporating, going back into the atmosphere. Some of it is accumulating in reservoirs and rivers, but a lot of it is actually 
infiltrating into soils and then seeping through the subsurface to our groundwater stores that we have in the mountains as well as also in the Central Valley. So with this winter recharge from ag fields, we're basically adding more water intentionally to our groundwater aquifers. So that intentional recharge uses water that comes, for example, from rivers or reservoirs that have too much, where we can make small diversions and and just put it away before it runs down the river and out into the ocean. Okay. Is there anything sort of physical that we can or should do to the soil to to speed up the process so it recharges quicker? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are definitely some criteria we like to recommend that whoever wants to potentially implement the practice, please take a look at them. Uh, Soil suitability is one big criteria. So you want to make sure your soil has high infiltration rates. The water is seeping into the ground very quickly. We've actually developed a, a decision support tool, a web tool that can guide you on soil suitability, which you can find at Googling SAGB which stands for Soil Agricultural Groundwater Banking Index, a tool that was developed by my colleague, Toby Ogene. If you have perennial crops planted on your field, then you may want to look into only doing recharge during crop dormancy, because there is definitely a risk, particularly if you have long flooded conditions, so you have waterlogged conditions for several days, if not weeks, Actively growing crops can definitely be damaged by the anoxic conditions that we create by having water on the field for long times. So almond growers, for example, should only do this maybe in December, January, early February. Vineyards, on the other hand, seem to be a lot more tolerant. So vineyards have actually been flooded even when they're leafing out and they seem to be doing fine on soils that are well drained. But yeah, if you have fallow fields that works just fine too. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, in, in your opinion, is it feasible that we can, you know, really bring these aquifers back to, back to where is maybe another question, but back to a balance as a result of, you know, intentional recharge initiatives? Yeah. Recharge is not going to be the solution for everything. Just because we have a a stark rainfall gradient or precipitation gradient in the state, so more rain is falling in the northern part of California, less in the south. And so there's also less excess water we can probably hope for in the southern part of the state. We also don't quite know how climate will unfold in the coming years. And just seeing that we had two you know, dry years in a row again, and we don't know how many are coming in the next couple of years. It's not clear you know, without rainfall, reliable rainfall, how we really gonna get there. Although uh, GSAs are exempt from achieving their goals when uh, we are in the drought state in the state. So then some of those rules and milestones we have to achieve are, are kind of not applied. But going back to recharge, Recharge is not the only solution. So most likely some regions will have to make other adjustments, such as land fallowing, or they might have to grow maybe more acreage in a low water use crop. So not maybe the most highly intensive crops that need a lot of water just to get even in the end. And the other note to add is in the state of the system was defined as of January 2015. So 
whatever system state you had at that point where your water levels were, what groundwater storage you had in your basin at that time, that's our baseline. That's the comparison we have to draw in the coming years. And we were pretty in a pretty bad shape in 2015 with towards the end of the drought. So it's actually not a high goal to achieve. Yeah. And what about quality? How concerned do we need to be about the quality of that water that we're putting back into these aquifers? Yeah. So for most of the recharge that we've done, we are actually using winter runoff, which often for the fields that we use is is, uh, rainfall or snowmelt runoff from the Sierra Nevada mountains. That water is typically considered to be very clean. It might contain some sediment, but it often does not really contain high contaminant loads like salts or nitrate. So actually doing more recharge with clean water is beneficial because we have accumulated quite a few contaminants in the groundwater that originate either from geogenic sources, so bedrock contaminants, or you know fertilizers or agrochemicals, pesticides uh, that we apply on fields. So doing recharge with clean water can definitely help in, in some areas to improve the water quality. But overall, I would say water quality in the long term is going to be our biggest concern, not the water quantity, because the more we use groundwater and the more we use it for irrigation, every time you do that, you bring more salts and more contaminants from the surface down into your groundwater system. And I think for the Tular Lake Basin, for example, there have been studies, uh, modeling studies that say that in 50 to 100 years, we can definitely see salinity levels that are not suitable for growing crops anymore. So we have to be careful about that. Yikes. Okay. That's a whole nother interview that we're going to have to do, but that's, um, yeah, that's also terrifying. I mean, the thought would be we would have to desalinate our groundwater. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's not a bad option in the long term because the salt concentrations of that groundwater, you know, they are still less saline than, for example, doing desalination of ocean water, which has a much, much higher salt concentration. But we may even want to think about, let's say we use water for processing uh, purposes like washing tomatoes, for example, after they have been harvested in the field, cleaning up that water before we recharge it, for example, or use it for other purposes like irrigation is much, much cheaper than having to do a full desalination cycle of highly saline water. So it's it's definitely easier and cheaper to do that. Okay, you heard Safiq mention SIGMA, or the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, and then you just heard Helen talk about GSAs, or Groundwater Sustainability Agencies. So the legislation, the SIGMA legislation, gave accountability to these GSAs to meet their groundwater goals over a certain period of time. So in some ways, farmers could be incentivized to recharge this groundwater, like many are talking about with carbon sequestration. It's another ecological service that farmers could potentially provide, whether it maybe be a sort of bank with deposits and withdrawals, or if it's an actual monetary incentive to help the GSAs meet their goals. Now, speaking of financial incentives, that brings us to our third and final section for today's episode, which is on water markets. Lance Coogan is our guest. He's the CEO of Vellus Water, one of the masterminds behind the NASDAQ Vellus California Water Index that launched just this past year. Now, this isn't a market necessarily where buyers and sellers show up to trade physical water. 
but instead an index of water prices that can easily be bought and sold. So in other words, it's liquid. All right. I had to. But think of it like an index fund, which is a way to buy and sell large collections of stocks all at once. The price of this index follows the actual price of water, both groundwater and surface water, but it's cash settled, so no delivery of water ever happens. Just the contracts are settled up at the expiration date. It's helpful if you're worried that the price of water is going to move against you over time and you want to protect yourself from that risk. I'm going to let Lance explain a lot more, but first I ask the question that inevitably comes up in conversations about water markets, which is, wait, shouldn't water be free? What is very significant is the fact that where water is ostensibly free, you get a lot of wastage. And I think that's a very important thing because there's a general group that think that water shouldn't be priced. But actually, water should be priced because it costs a lot of money to get it somewhere. And somebody's got to pay for that. And if you're getting it for free, like the government's paying it, so people are paying it by tax. So somebody's paying for it. You're paying for it anyway, but in a different form. But, you know, this issue of for free, it doesn't work because there's severe wastage or you don't get the entrepreneurial spirit in there making a plan to make something happen. You cut out the innovation, technological innovation, the financial innovation that's required to make a, a system efficient. So I see eventually that market solutions will be these solutions that will bring the most cost-effective delivery price of water wherever you are in the world. Just to embellish a little bit on that is that um, in most places, there is enough water, there isn't enough money, and that's the biggest problem. For example, if you, you want to look at it in its harshest terms, if you even take California, the west coast of California, you know, it's the sea. You know, there's plenty of water there. And there is a technology available, desalination, to bring you water. It's just it's very expensive. And if you're on the coast, it's very expensive. And if you're inland, it's even more expensive because you've got to desalinate and you've got to move it. So it's not seen as the most viable solution. But by bringing in financial products, you start to make that system, technology and the financial products, start to bring those prices down and bring the solution to people where they need it. Let's make it more efficient. Let's let the technology innovators and the financial innovators come in and bring the prices down so everybody can get the water that they deserve. That, that's what should be happening, is uh, allow the market forces to work to get the solution. We're going to get back to the moral and ethical aspects of water being a basic human right at the end of the conversation here. Spoiler, he does believe the right to water is a basic human right for everyone. But before we do, I want to let Lance explain more what I tried to explain a few minutes ago, which is how this cash-settled NASDAQ Vellus Water Index actually works. So there's an index, and that is the index is made up of four groundwater basins and the surface water market. The surface water market is the biggest component of that, about 50%, but it varies year to year. So 
there are physical transactions that take place in those respective markets. They are all recorded and it is those transactions. So the actual price is what is represented in our price. It's a volume weighted average of the actual trades that take place in the market. And only when they, an important issue is only when they get to full certification of the trade going through is that trade taken into account. So for example, people couldn't say they're going to buy a million acre feet here and then pretend to buy it and then the market goes a certain way and then comes back again because they didn't do it. It's only once it's through. So it's like a bit like a property transaction. The deal's only done when, when it's finally done. You can be talking about it for three months. So that actual price is where on a monthly basis the futures settle on that price. They expire at whatever that price is at that time. So there are two month monthly futures and there are eight quarterly futures, which will mean just because of the way the year is 12 months in it, you'll always have three front months and one of them will be a quarterly month that you can trade. But the very front month, like for example, now we're in May, the May contract is the nearest month. Whatever the water index NQH2O expires at, at the end of, on the expiry date of May, which is the third Wednesday of the month, that is the price that your future settled. So if you had bought a May in January this year, you would have been paying 500 and something for it. And now it's, you know, it's in the 900s. So what would have happened is you would have taken exposure, you would nearly have, you know, the price is nearly doubled. So you, you would have made that amount of money and that amount of money now gives you the extra cash to go and buy the water in the market because that's the price of the water in the market. So you've made that money to be able to pay for that, that water. So then you can go and get the water. You've got the excess cash to be able to pay the excess price that it's moved. And the other side of that trade is someone saying either they're bearish the price of water for whatever the case may be, or they're just saying, I think when this settles, it's going to settle lower than the current price. So I'm going to sell here. If you're a, a speculator, you generally take the view that you're trying to double guess the market and you're not always right. Sellers sell for many reasons. You know, for example, they've got their allocation and they don't need to use all of it. They're following fields, various reasons. People always have a reason to sell. So anyone who's got excess water exposure, and there are people with water exposure that is greater than their needs, they are forever selling. So it's also very difficult to double-guess the exact highest price that the market's going to be. So you know, sell a bit a month, a bit the next month, a bit the next month. Knowing that you're coming into the summer season, it's a time of relative strength in the price of water historically. So then you, you just sell into the strength, you know, and at the end of the year, you have a look and say, we sold over 12 months. The average price for the year was, you know, 802 and our average price is 799 or 805 or something. So you don't have to exactly pick that moment when it's at its highest or at its lowest. For users and asset holders, you basically are doing the best you can to either sell your assets or you could be hedging your assets. You might think like now, for example, the price is relatively high. Some people say it's going to go higher. Some people say it's peaked. Yeah, I, I don't know. But it is relatively high, especially from where it's been. And you can understand why people might want to sell 
without selling their water, they can lock in the price at 900 and something now. Whereas, you know, in January you would have locked it in at 530 or something. And if it was the previous January, it would be 230. Um, so you can understand why someone would look to lock in the price now. And for other people who want to hedge their water risk, but they're not in Southern California, are there spreads like another market where, for example, corn, you know, corn is number two, yellow corn is number two, yellow corn everywhere. And the difference is freight. So I can know that if it's this price in Nebraska, it's going to be somewhere around that price in Texas, just based on freight. Does water work in similar ways? Not yet, but it, we'll get there. There is a correlation between water price in Southern California and regions close by. There is a thing called basis risk, which is the difference between sort of your water price and the price of the index. And in, in, in very various places in Southern California, it's similar to what you were mentioning in that the prices are related and you can, you know, your start, if the index is at 800 and you know that you buy your water at 750, but if the index goes to 900, your water goes to 850. Yeah, it moves in the same proportion. So um, there is that, but further out, there are different factors that affect, affect price. In Southern California, a lot of it is precipitation-based and... Um, yeah, there, there are other regions, yeah, Florida, yeah, the Northeast, et cetera, which are you know, completely different to Southern California. Cool. Well, thank you for this explanation. It's really helpful. Anything else that we should make sure we mention? Just uh, audience of kind of innovators in agriculture, a lot of progressive farmers, people in ag tech. Uh, anything else about this that you think they might find interest while I have some time from you? Okay, so I think there's a bit of philosophy behind it, which doesn't really apply in Southern California, mainly because in Southern California it's, it's very, very regulated. But there's a, in certain parts of the world, there's a philosophical thought process that, yeah, water should be free. And, um, yeah, it's a human right. Well, it's not water that's a human right, it's the right to water is a human right, which I agree with. The concern is that Wall Street or the latest investment bankers and hedge funds that are going to buy all the water and everybody else is going to die of thirst. So, yeah, there is a bit of policy that should come in and there are practical solutions to that. For example, and this applies to many countries actually, in a way it could apply to California even though California doesn't need it, is that... Um, if you take the water supply, a big portion of that water, depending on where you are in the world, but often where water is under stress is irrigation. In some places like in Africa, it's half mining, half irrigation. So you've got your big water, then you've got your middle water, which is normally business, and then you've got your small water, which is the um, water comes out of a tap in homes, domestic use. A very small subsection of small water is the underprivileged population who either can't afford it or have no income. And that's that's who everyone's worried about. So policy decisions can be put in place where big water pays, that big chunk subsidizes that tiny little bit. And in, in most places in the world, we've done the sums, and it makes just about no difference to the price of water to the big players. They, they won't even notice it. 
So as you can tell, this can be a really helpful tool for water market participants, including farmers, to hedge their price risk if there are, of course, enough participants to create a liquid market and maintain a liquid market out forward. But to be clear, this doesn't necessarily create more water available for us or decrease overall demand, but it's a good example of financial innovation in water. So to Lance's point, putting prices on the value of water could incentivize conservation and could allow those using it for maybe lower value activities to monetize it by selling it to those using higher value activities and sort of letting the uh, magic hand of the market, as they might say, do the work of distributing that. Now, of course, I don't want to be unclear here. I'm not saying we should charge people for water on every level, because I agree with Lance's comments in that it's a basic human right to have water, but there's a whole lot of water being used that's beyond just the basic human needs. And so I think maybe some sort of financial structures and innovation in that area could go a long way. All right, hopefully you're leaving with a little bit of better understanding overall, and or at least an appreciation for the issues happening in California water. As I said at the top of the show, this is not just relevant to California. These same issues are happening in pretty much all irrigated areas, especially those that pump groundwater. There's a ton of room here for innovation to help move some of these fundamental concepts we discussed in this episode forward. I hope this got your wheels turning a little bit, and if it did, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to hear your feedback either on social media or email. I'm at tim at aggrad.com. Episodes like this do take me a little bit longer to put together, so if they are valuable, it helps me to hear that from you. But thank you so very much to Dr. Safiq Khan, Dr. Helen Dalka, and Lance Coogan for being here on the show today. For you listening, what are your next burning questions about water? I know I want to follow up on this topic of groundwater quality but I'm also open to others. So send me a tweet or an email on that as well. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I never take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Oh, 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 o